Hey, all you nature nerds, this is You're Gonna Die Out There. nature nerds to another episode of you're gonna die out there this is megan i'm sitting across from my co-host jen hello (laughs) (laughs) who'll be telling our story today that's right yes uh we just finished thanksgiving we're recording a little ahead of schedule i'm so proud of us i'm yeah i'm pretty proud of us yeah but we made it we have a schedule it was uh it was great thank you jen for hosting as per usual we did a we did a thing megan and her son were there Mm -hmm. and i just want everyone to know that i learned something new about my my longtime friend Megan. Oh no! <laughs> something that I only wish she would have brought up while we were recording. Good times, but unfortunately, <laughs> she brought it up while we were having our Thanksgiving dinner, which is that. Or fortunately, I don't know. <laughs> until the age of about ten, she ate the paper on the cupcake. <laughs> the cupcakes, yeah. I thought it was part of the cupcake. <laughs> I was like, "How did you just eat the paper? What if it was foil or like?" Some sort of like oh you know what I never I do not remember ever having cupcakes with foil on them until way later like maybe well, that's I mean, why <laughs> that's probably why I guess the paper was just too I feel like it was early eighties like you right? just you, ha- you couldn't have chewed it though you had to just it was swallow. chewy it was chew mm. like it, there was some tearing I mean, involved mm, yeah I do remember just like towards the end of this. That I would just kind of like suck on it a little bit and then throw it away because people were looking at me weird. But Until then, finally yeah. she was in what, fifth grade? Something like that. And someone was like, you know, you're not supposed to do it. And I was like, what? They were like, what are you doing? You're like, nothing. And then I was just labeled like <laughs> cupcake paper eater forever. <laughs> yeah, no, I thought it was a thing. <sighs> so many things I look back on in my life where I'm like, that wasn't a thing. How did I make it? How did I make it, Jen? I don't know. What was your mom doing that she never noticed? I mean, that's something parents notice when their kids are like two. Yeah, don't three. eat that, right? Yeah. Hey, hey, you don't eat that part. Right? Mm-hmm. I don't know. It was maybe let me, they had things Let me going take on. the wrapper off for you. <laughs> and then, you know, so kids right. figure it out. Yeah. Well, even when my son was younger, I would make the cupcake sandwich because you know that kid would have eaten the paper. If I hadn't been watching. Oh, for sure. hundred percent. I mean, he is like me in a lot of ways. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I love the cupcake sandwich personally. I'm not really into cupcakes, to be honest. I mean, they're all right. Yeah. It's okay. I like the cake. I don't like the icing. But anyway, that was that was a golden <laughs> nugget of another Meganism. It was great. So good. I enjoyed that. I was thankful for that story on you know, Thanksgiving. That's what I'm here for. So many <laughs> wonderful stories of my random childhood. Oh, so Megan. Yes. Do you have some science news for you know, us today? You know, I have some science news. And actually, I was, <laughs> let me just, so Jen knows that I was looking for my science news earlier because I texted her <laughs> just the words science news. <laughs> and then I was like, oh, I meant to put that into Google. And that's what she Googles, mm-hmm. just so everyone knows. I just knows. say science news. And then I decide what I'm like, am I going to go to like Science Daily or I IFL? feel like science news, though, can be a little too broad for me. Oh, like yeah? it throws me into like astronomy and, you know, like deep space science or like things that sure. are get a little technical. And I'm like, no, no, no. You look more specifically. I I look more specifically for like nature or conservation. Yeah. Because all that other stuff, it's like yawn. 
I really? Don't, I, don't I, like to know. I just look up science news and then I just go through the top stories on those websites. Okay. And if something okay. calls out to me, that's how I choose my science Over here, news. Megan. <clears throat> yeah. And actually, this one kind of did that. It caught my eye, Jen. Okay. Well, I can't wait to hear it. Um, it is called Oldest Evidence of the Controlled Use of Fire to Cook Food, Researchers Report. <laughs> <laughs> I know that seems really boring. Okay, the reason it jumped out at me is because, <laughs> because it's talking about fire, and then they had, like, a campfire uh-huh. as the cover art. Yeah. And, like, I've been kind of trying to have people roast marshmallows at my house since before Halloween. I was like, the kids will come over for our Halloween party, and they're going to roast marshmallows. So I went and I got wood. I have, like, a little fire table that I bought from a neighbor for too much money. Yeah, you that know? is why. That's it right there. Yeah, that's, and that's I've, the key. I've been thinking about it. I just keep like, we should, and I bought like the sticks that you put the, because, you know, for the marshmallows and I bought like s'mores mm-hmm. stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then. I feel like we talked about campfires once. You talked about it. Yes, I did. It was a Legends. Yeah, like Campfire Legends. Yes, yes. Yeah, I'm obsessed a little bit. So anyway, yeah, I saw this and I was like, oh, neat. <laughs> 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 so basically, this was November 15th is when it was put out on ScienceDaily.com. And it is referring to a research report that talks about the remains of a huge carp fish that marked the earliest signs of cooking by prehistoric humans. 780,000 years ago, which predates current data, like previous like mm-hmm. data, by 600,000 years. What? Yeah. That's BP before people? Probably. <laughs> I don't know. It just says, just you know, that many years ago. Yeah. Before BP. present. Before present. We, we know. We know we're talking about. Close enough. All right. So a remarkable scientific discovery has been made by researchers from the Hebrew University of Jerusalem, Tel Aviv University, and Barlin University, I think I said that right, in collaboration with the Steinhardt Museum of Natural History, Oranum Academic College, and the Israel Oceanographic and Limnological Research Institution. It's a lot. Oh, and the Natural History Museum in London. So it's super important. Yeah, lots of people. They all got lots together. Of, they were yeah, like, this people. is freaking cool. They did a close analysis of the remains of a carp-like fish found at the Geyser Benot. I don't know how to say that last part. Y-A apostrophe A-Q-O-V archaeological site in Israel. It shows that fish were cooked. Those fish that they found were cooked 780,000 years ago. It goes into what cooking is. You know, it's just like when you add heat to something. Nice. So, like I said, until now, the earliest evidence of cooking dates to approximately 170,000 years ago. And I guess this has been kind of constant discussion between sci- like, among scientists. Like, when was the first use of fire? Like, when did man first discover fire uh-huh. and use it for cooking? So the study was led by a team of researchers from all these different areas. I already named those places. I'm not going to do it again. Don't, yeah, don't, it's okay. <laughs> But there are two faculty members, Dr. Zohar and Dr. Prevost. They say this study demonstrates the huge importance of fish in the life of prehistoric humans for their diet and economic stability. Further, by studying the fish remains found in this archaeological site, we were able to reconstruct for the first time the fish population of that ancient Hula Lake and show that the lake held fish species that became extinct over time, which is kind of cool. That is pretty cool. Yeah. So it's like extra stuff. They're like, oh, neat, fire, but also look at this cool population. Fish population, yeah. yeah. These species included giant barbs, which are carp-like fish, that reached up to two meters in length. The large quantity of fish remains found at the site proves their frequent consumption by early humans who developed special cooking techniques. And I'm like, I wonder, there's like that one guy who's just like sashimi and then like fish kebabs. 
Somebody got some real bad diarrhea from the sashimi. <laughs> and they're like, like, we have to cook this. We got to figure out a way to do this differently. Burn it with fire. Just burn it. These new findings demonstrate not only the importance of freshwater habitats and the fish they contained for the sustenance of prehistoric man, but also illustrate prehistoric humans' ability to control fire in order to cook food and their understanding the benefits of cooking fish before eating it, not after. Especially carp. <laughs> I don't know if I want a sashimi carp. Yeah, I mean, any freshwater fish. Right? I mean, there's that whole, there's like memes and jokes about how, you know, people figured out what made you sick or what was right. poisonous or how to do things. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Somebody was like just eating some carp raw. That for just golem, goleming it. <laughs> just yeah. ripping into the side of the fish. Yeah. And then this other guy had his fire mm-hmm. and he was just like, they put the fish on, just put the fish on it, see what happens. Yeah, fine. Then it smelled really good. And they were like, that smells amazing. They're like, wow. They sprinkled some salt on it. Yeah. Like that guy from, what's he from Argentina or something? The, the guy with the salt? Yeah. Salt Bay. They did some salt. <laughs> that was random. <laughs> That's what I always think of. So you might be wondering how it was that these researchers were like, oh, these fish were cooked with fire. How can you tell? In the study, <laughs> the researchers focused on their pharyngeal teeth. Those are like the teeth that they were using to grind. I guess it's kind of in the front, right? Like they would grind up shells and hard foods. The fish were. Oh, okay. Yeah, not the people that belonged to the fish from that carp family. Those teeth were found in large quantities at different archaeological strata at the site. So just the teeth. By studying the structure of the crystals that form the teeth enamel, the researchers were able to prove that the fish caught at the ancient adjacent lake adjacent to the site, were exposed to temperatures suitable for cooking and were not simply burned by a spontaneous fire. So there was no <laughs> spontaneous they fire. They just jumped the out of the water <laughs> and, and landed in a fire. fire. Yeah. yeah. In this case, they were burned by likely a human fire. Until now, evidence of the use of fire for cooking had been limited to sites that came into use much later than this site. We already said 600,000 years later from this site. Which is, that's a big leap. That's huge. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm like, how come there's nothing in between those times? They just haven't found it yet. Just this one place. I'm like, how did they find some carp teeth? Just looking. How did you find that? Archaeology, Jen. Digging in the dirt. That's just wild. Another professor working on this, Gorin Inbar, said, The fact that the cooking of fish is evident over such a long and unbroken period of settlement at the site indicates a continuous tradition of cooking food. This is another in a series of discoveries relating to the high cognitive capabilities of the hunter-gatherers who are active in the ancient Hula Valley region. Wow. So cool. Yeah. Well, I mean, they must have just, they found people, Bones. Yeah. And then they're like, well, let's keep looking because this is like a site. This is a site. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm sure they were like, yeah, just like a where they threw the bones for the fish. Yeah. Just like, ugh, we don't need this anymore. But carp teeth. It's really interesting just to find it. A lot. And know what it is. I'm just imagining there's like huge buck teeth. (laughs) (laughs) Like what did carp look like 700,000 years ago? Right. Uh Well, these are carp like. Yeah. Yeah. Probably pretty funky. They probably were. Professor Herskovitz and Dr. Zohar note the transition from eating raw food to eating cooked food had a dramatic implication for human development and behavior. Eating cooked food reduces the bodily energy required to break down and digest food, allowing other physical systems to develop. It also leads to changes in the structure of the human jaw and skull. Uh, This change freed humans from the daily intensive work of searching for and digesting raw food, providing them free time in which to develop new social and behavioral systems like Facebook. (laughs) where they can all those ancient men can go around and compare their barbecuing skills yeah 
and seasonings. They had their first cook-off. <laughs> exactly. At this time. Right? <laughs> Some scientists view eating fish as a milestone in the quantum leap in human cognitive evolution, providing a central catalyst for the development of the human brain. They claim that eating fish is what made us human. Even today, it is widely known that the contents of fish flesh, such as omega-3 fatty acids, fish flesh, fish flesh uh, zinc, iodine, and more contribute greatly to brain development. So that's pretty cool. I hope they keep looking for more campsites where other teeth will indicate fire has been used. For I food. just can't. It's just so long ago. Uh, yeah. I can't. My Put brain it in perspective. Can't. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I can't. My brain can only jump back to like a few thousand years. The Renaissance. Maybe. <laughs> yeah. It's really it's hard. I mean, yeah, I have a hard time jumping back to like, you know, 1900. <laughs> I'm like, man, that's actually really recent. That's really recent. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I saw this. Um, I don't know what it's called, but there's some I think I signed us up on our Instagram or we're following them. And it's just people who paint old photographs. Oh, and they make them color? That? And they kind of they do it so it kind of comes together, like fades into the color. That's cool. Literally, they look like like right. a real photo right. of today. Which is what I, it, I love. it. Yeah. When you see a black and white photo, even if you see a black and white photo now, it, there's mm-hmm. something different about it, right? It's hard to relate. It's hard. Yeah. You feel like a step removed. So, And then when you see the color, like whenever I see the ones of the depression mm-hmm. and they're in color, I'm like, oh my God. They're real people. That really happened. Yeah. It's like once when I was on a flight, I watched the name of the movie is like 1914. I don't know what it, but it's basically they took all these reels, like videos they had from World War One. Yes. And they colorized it and added sounds. Yes. To make it real. Real. Yeah. And man, it's I trippy. couldn't stop watching it. And it's right. going to goes on forever. But which I feel I was like on a long flight. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like we should we should watch things like that and then it will bring it home. Like yeah. this wasn't that long ago. Yeah, because my grandpa was he was a vet in World War One. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, dang, right? that's when people really got the trench foot. Yeah. They were just in the mud. It was for real. all the time. It was for real. It was pretty rough. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And he went over there. He went to like France. He went somewhere. Yeah. Far. Yeah. Where it was. He was one of those guys. Yeah. It's crazy. I feel like my dad lucked out because he was born in between the wars. So I think my great grandpa must have been late 1800s yeah. when he was born. Yeah. To be able to be old enough to go to war. Yeah. yeah. Yep. Wild. Crazy. It is crazy. Anyway. Okay. Well, I'm glad you enjoyed that Back science news. To uh, life. Back to <laughs> I am reality. excited to hear your story for today. Some 1980s right there for you. Is this going to be a 1980s 90s? story? No, it's not. Well, I, I mean, we kind of go back to some. It's kind of a lot of stories. Oh, I'm here to tell some stories. I'm a fan. I know. I know you guys love some stories and some of them. They're all kind of sad. But today, Megan and yes. listeners, on I'm today's gonna, episode, I'm going to be talking about Paddle sports. Oh, no. Oh, no. <laughs> Which is one of my favorites. I don't know. We do it differently here. We do um, island style. You mean, you mean paddle sports like in a boat, not paddle sports Well, like let me tell you because I'm going to tell you the table. definition. Table tennis. Yes. The definition. Um, paddling refers to the group of water sports mm-hmm. that require a paddle to propel or steer through the water. Canoeing, kayaking, rafting, and stand-up paddle boarding are sports that fall under the paddle sports category. Oh. As, well, canoeing's on there, but sure. we do outrigger canoeing here. Yeah, yeah. It's super fun. It looks cool. 
<laughs> I tried to make Megan do it one time and she was like, it's too hot. You're like stuck in place. It feels so like I just want to jump in the water because it's so hot. But you can't because you have to be participating in the paddle. <laughs> it's so fun. I love it. Anyway, back in June, we got an email from one of our listeners, Camille, who is a bestie of my bestie growing up. Yes. They live in Tulsa. So she sent us a message that she had gone to Costa Rica. And I don't know how to, if I say this right, Tamarindo. And they went to this Rican de la Vieja volcano. It's also, it's a national park. Cool. They went there to zip line, which I'm like, we could do a whole episode on zip lining because a lot of people have been seriously injured from zip lining. Yeah. You know, the guy in Tiger King, that's how he lost his legs was from a zip lining injury. What? Yeah. That's just... It's wild. Unfortunate. Anyway. <clears throat> and then they went to Rio, Colorado, and she went tubing, like whitewater rafted, rapid type tubing. But like in a tube. Just yeah, like she a, was in a tube, not like a in a raft. Mat. Okay. So mm -hmm. she was like, I think this would be a cool topic. Mm -hmm. And I agreed. Yeah. And I was like, I'm totally going to do that. And then that it's December, but it's fine, Camille. Sometimes fine. it takes time. It takes time. So... Also, just Costa Rica in general could be a whole story because oh, a lot sure. of crazy stuff happens and there's a lot of interesting nature. She also mentioned that their guide had told them about an American tourist, this guy, David Immelfarb, I think is how you say it, that he disappeared hiking in that same national park and he has never been found. That was in 2009. Oh. And I read she sent me the link to an article and it's very sad because, you know, of course, his parents are just still holding out hope. Yeah. But... It's been a while. It's been a while. But there's a $100,000 reward. Mm. I mean, that's a substantial reward, but yeah. just disappeared. It's very, very sad. sad. Anyway, thanks, Camille, for the suggestion. So here we go. I'm, I'm ready. We're heading down getting, that road. Uh, getting my my hat on, my safety helmet. Yes. My personal flotation device. <laughs> so the history of kayaks and canoes, Megan. The world's oldest boat is a canoe. This is like the otter, artar. I'm ready. This is the best part of the episode. <laughs> anyway, it's well, believed. Let me get out my pencil. I'm going to write this And down. now that after hearing your story of fire, I think this could be wrong, but it's believed to be around 10,000 years old. Oh. This is the oldest canoe they found. Hmm. It was discovered in the Netherlands in 1955. I thought that was pretty cool. In Inuit, the word kayak translates to hunter's boat, and they were originally used by the Inuit people for transporting furs as well as hunting seals because you need the blubber. They also used to build the kayaks from stretching seal skins over a frame made of whale bones. Ooh. That's a wild. Also, the first canoeing made it to the Olympics in Paris in 1924. Oh, wow. Hungary is the country with the most Olympic medals across canoeing events. Oh. They have 77. That's a lot. Good job, you guys. So far, Great Britain have taken 13 medals between kayaking and canoeing disciplines. Mm -hmm. So North American native people, right. yeah. they would fashion their canoes from birch bark. Mm -hmm. The joints were held together using the root of white pine trees, and they would also need to apply hot pine or spruce resin. That's how it like, held together the canoes, and the water wouldn't get in. Yeah. Not sure if I mentioned that these are just some uh, random facts I'm random going facts. in about kayaking. Okay, so here's another one. A World War I veteran, speaking of World War I, by the name of Franz Romer was the first person to cross the Atlantic Ocean in a kayak at the age of 29. Hold up. Yes. The Atlantic? Yes. His trip began in Lisbon, Portugal, and finished in Puerto Rico 58 days later, what? covering 4,000 miles. But 
I don't know how this happened. Nobody to this day holds the record, the Guinness World Record for longest kayaking journey. And I think it should be him. But I think because you you have to meet all their requirements. Mm -hmm. So somehow, and there was a guy, there's a whole thing about it, but I didn't want to go into it because my, I have a lot of things to talk about. Yeah. But um, there was a guy who did have a record, but then he got disqualified later mm. because there was a discrepancy anyway. So listen, you guys, oh, that's so still up for grabs. You're saying it's open. It's open. You could be the person that has the longest kayaking journey, but don't say I told you so to do it because then if something bad happens, but like if really bad. nobody's in there mm-hmm. for any kind of kayaking journey, then you could just be like two miles and yes. you're like, I have the longest. That's what I'm saying. Right. I don't know. You I could hold know. it. Megan looks really like... excited right now. <laughs> I could do that. Just, just, just stop. Somebody could tell me that it's changed since this article I read, but I thought it was pretty recent. Interesting. That's pretty cool. All right, so let's talk about some statistics. It was hard to find worldwide statistics on paddle sport, like incidences, like deaths and other Mm -hmm. statistics. They only had ones for the U.S. And so here we go. All right. Over 37 million participants engaged in paddle sports like kayaking, canoeing, stand-up paddleboarding during the pandemic. So most of these come from the pandemic. Oh, no. Because people were like, whoa. I'm going to learn how to paddleboard. I guess if I'm outside by myself and my kayak, it's fine. They brought an estimated 2.5 million new paddlers to America's waterways. It increased accidents to 331 and fatalities to a record high of 202. That's a lot. That's a lot. So accounting for more than 26% of all boating fatalities that year. And this is, I think we're talking about 2020. Right. Okay. Pandemic. The Water Sports Foundation Executive Director Jim Emmons said that boating in general is still one of the safest forms of recreation. But the data from 2020, which is the most recent year from which, you know, they have that. Actually, I have the 2021, but from this article, it was what they had. Basically, what it boils down to is there's more incidents, but there were more people. Right. Right. So it just looked like it went up, but actually it wasn't. Maybe the rate stayed the same. It's about the same or even kind of less comparatively. And he said that nearly three quarters of people who died paddling and paddling accidents had less than 100 hours experience in the activity. And over one third had less than 10 hours experience. Oh, okay. So yeah, that's what they're saying is mostly it's people they are like, this looks easy and they just do it. We've all seen the videos. And they just they just go into yeah. the Everglades and they are never seen and again. And they sink. Yeah. <laughs> And people, they say people are drawn to paddle sports mm-hmm. because it's it's inexpensive. It's easy to get a kayak. You can just rent a kayak. It's cheap. It's Even true. like five bucks, it's baby. True. It's so cheap. Well, There's no license required. There's no marina fees. Yeah. You don't need a permit. You don't need to buy fuel. What's crazy is you can just paddle around like boats, like motor boats. You can just paddle around wherever. A- anywhere. And yeah. It's fine. You could die. And then that, and then bad things can happen. I mean, we know of a place here that you can, for pretty cheap, rent a glass bottom kayak. Can you? Yeah. Where's that? The thingy. Oh, yeah. I know that. They got them last. No, they got them like end of the pandemic. Huh. It was like a thing, and uh, it's. I think it's only like fifteen bucks well, for the pretty, day. That's kind of cool. And it's like, well, I don't think it's glass. It's like <laughs> you know whatever plexiglass or something, but you can look. That's kind of cool. There was also some statistics from the U.S. Coast Guard from 2021. Mm -hmm. And they said that same thing, like the numbers went way up in 2020. But the total deaths fell from 767 
to 658. And I think that this must be the ones from the earlier numbers I had may have been from just a certain area. Sorry. Mm-hmm. I Like I said, it was really hard to find <laughs> this information. But anyway, the numbers had dropped, but they say it still remains high. And kayaks are listed as a vessel type with the second highest fatalities behind open motor boats, which don't even fit in, in this, this category. category. In this right. category, anyway. Yeah. So there were 160 fatalities in kayaking and canoeing in 2021 versus 164. I mean... So four people less. Yeah, that's not. Is that significant? <laughs> I don't I know. Mean, it's significant to those people, obviously. But I, obvi- like, yes, not for the data. Yeah. So the U.S. Coast Guard said, and this is kind of a list that they had. Kayaks are listed with second highest. Yeah. Okay. I already said that. In 2021, there were 96 fatalities while kayaking compared to 112 in 2020. That's just kayaking, not all the things. Mm-hmm. And there were 46 fatalities while canoeing compared to 42 in 2020 hmm. and 18 fatalities by stand-up paddleboarding compared to 10 how you fall how, off how do you oh and just drown i don't well so 81 percent of fatal boating accidents the victims drown hmm. of those victims with reported life jacket usage 83 percent were not wearing a life jacket well because it's not cool jen you yeah. can get a really bad tan and it's hot it's, yeah, so it's just hot. Un- uncomfortable Alcohol use is the leading known contributing factor in fatal recreational boating accidents. Okay, I'm not going to lie. Sometimes if I have like a drink or something, you know, and we're like near the beach, I think to myself, I would really love to go kayaking right now. Oh, yeah. It's just like, you know, tool around. Yeah. In the calm, in the calm water. But the thing is, is they're, they're just, yeah, they're not wearing a life jacket. Yeah. Acting silly. And, you know. The water. Water just changes. It can be high. It can be low. It can be, you can have currents. Right. It's just, you just never know. Well, and I feel like out here, all of a sudden it's storming and you didn't know that was going to happen. Right. Yeah. The lightning. Did you guys listen to the lightning episodes? True Could that. Could be lightning. True that. But here's the thing. They said that the data tells them that most accidents happen in flat water due to falling overboard or capsizing. And it's usually untrained paddlers that don't know how to get back in the boat once they've Mm, fallen out. And they're not wearing a life jacket. And sometimes the water is cold. So they've got that going. So that's and And I and I can tell you that it is hard to get back on a boat Mm -hmm. because we actually practice it. We call it a hooli drill. You, you flip your boat on purpose. You uh, hooli maka flip. Uh-huh. And then you try to get back in, <laughs> yeah. right? And it's hard because then it's full of water. You got to get the water out. As a paddler, <laughs> as a seasoned paddler, <laughs> when I flip my what, I have a one-man canoe. And when I flip it, which I've only done like once because I don't flip You're canoe. a professional. <laughs> yeah. But I actually have a... A little bail, we call it a bailer, but it's it's just like a little container that's cut. Yeah. To, so with a handle. Like a milk jug. It's like a milk, yeah, but a yeah, small yeah. one because it's my small boat. And I have it tied with a string to the back of my, you know, like in the back of my boat. It's like behind my seat where I'm sitting. And I have a life jacket back there. And I have... um All your preparations. Yeah. So yeah. if I were to flip, I get back on and I can just bail the water out. It'll be all good. Yeah. But you have to practice. You need to know how to get back on your boat. For sure. Let me just tell you, for ladies, as long as you can get your boobs over, you're good to go. (laughs) (laughs) So we always tell the ladies, just get, once you get those girls over, the rest of you will get in. It's all good. Yeah. And you don't need to look good doing it. Just get your butt in there. No one's taking pictures for GQ. Well, they might be, but it's okay. (laughs) No, I was going to say that, I mean, I've told this story before on a previous episode. I don't even remember. It was like a while ago, but that I had gone rafting when I was younger, got caught underneath the boat, 
And then when we got oh, out yeah. of the rapid, they had to pull me onto the boat. You know, and you practice before, you know, they tell you if you're across from that person who falls out, you're supposed to go over and grab them by their underarms and pull them in, you mm-hmm. know. But you mm-hmm. have to, as the person being pulled in, you have to, like, kick and, like, really, like, push yourself. You're just laying there dead weight. Just let take me in. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, I remember getting pulled in from that and just, I'm sure it didn't look good, but... You just got to. Yeah. So there's certain things that I think for people who have never done it, they don't think about it. Yeah. So to help, the Coast Guard has intensified their focus on paddlecraft safety through doing some outreach and education courses, vessel safety checks and talking to people who sell the kayaks, you know, the stores or people who are renting it, that they need to make sure people have at least the basic information for safety and very much encourage the use of life jackets. We're going to go into that a little more later, but I was just going to say, I love when people wear a life jacket, but it's not like clasped. It's like the same thing when I see someone wearing like a helmet and either it's backwards (laughs) and not clasped or just like on them and not clasped. Uh And I'm like, why even wear it? What's the point? I feel like you're going to get more hurt. (laughs) Right? (laughs) Yeah. Anyway, I also looked at death by sport. So comparing kayaking to other sports. Mm -hmm. And this is a weird... I'm just going to say which one. So up at the top, as far as a sport that is more dangerous, scuba diving. It was at the top. Makes sense. Climbing. Also makes sense. And then after that, whitewater kayaking. Yep. Then uh, recreational swimming, bicycling, and then whitewater boating or rafting, meaning like you're in a raft. Okay. And then hunting. Uh, Well. Oh, actually. And then below that, skiing, snowboarding, which I would have thought would have been higher up there. Oh, yeah. 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 It's down there. Yeah, no, I the reason I was super into whitewater rafting is because one day I wanted to do whitewater kayaking because I was like, I'm going to be on the river all the time. Like uh-huh. when I was younger, I was like, this is what I'm going to do. It's going to be so freaking amazing. It's going to be my life. I had a lot of Tevas. You know what I mean? <laughs> right. Like I had a lot of those like hemp, the hemp jewelry. Uh-huh. You know, oh, like, yeah. Kind of, of course. I had T-shirts with like frogs life stages on it. Uh-huh. Like That was my life. OK, that was a. That was a Peace Corps in the making. All umbros all the time. Mm-hmm. Like, I was into it. I was like, this is what I'm going to do. And Just a I, hint of patchouli. Yeah, I was getting there. 100%. <laughs> I definitely had candles that were made of other old candles. Uh-huh. And like... Some um, incense. Yeah. Oh, so much incense. See, a lot of incense. A lot of brown. There's a lot of brown. Yes. Anyway, yeah. So I was going to do that. And then after that accident, I couldn't flip the kayak. I never passed my kayak skills test in the lake because I could never flip myself back up because I would get underwater. I would like fully panic uh-huh. and then I would bail immediately. Isn't that crazy how like one yeah. incident can really throw you off? Yeah. And I remember I had done it before. I had I had already done it. You know, I had done a kayak thing uh-huh. and then I went to a camp and I was like, oh, I'm just going to re-up my certification because we're going to go on this river and I want a kayak. And then you just failed. I failed. I failed so hard. It's like for a long time I could do uh, box jumps. In my workout class. Oh, yeah. Until one day I hit the box Ugh. and just gushed blood out of my leg. But I kept mm-hmm. working out. I just pulled my... <laughs> I was like, it's fine. It's fine. I just kept giving just blood. It's like, I'm totally fine. It's like that Julia Child SNL <laughs> thing. Yeah. It's right. like Dan Aykroyd. It's just, it's just like blood everywhere. Yes. Yeah. It was kind of like that. <laughs> but after that, I've never been able to... Box jump? I can't. Like I freeze like half, like right when I start. Let's pause this right now. Let's uh-huh. go get to do a box jump outside. <laughs> <laughs> We're doing it. <laughs> no, I know I need to just start on a smaller, you know, like yeah, work yeah, my yeah. way up. But it just like, it's a, f- I freeze. Mm-hmm. Isn't that it, crazy? It makes you nervous. But I did it for know. years and you, I was fine and I could do it. it feels like. Yes. Yeah. 
You're like, I just don't want to do it again. <laughs> yeah. It's just the fear is there. It's the mm-hmm. same thing. All right. Whitewater deaths by decade. And this is looking at just not. OK, so kayaking can be you can just be kayaking on a lake. It's very right. calm. But this yeah. is whitewater. And this can include people being on rafts and other things. So just from 1977 to 1986, there were 48 deaths. And this is mm-hmm. just in the U.S. 87 to 96, 219 97 to 2006 was 453, and then 2007 to 2016 was 530. Just more people getting uh, into water sports. Yeah, it's just more people. So I think in the late 80s when I was young, I went whitewater rafting in Montana. I think I brought it up one time before. It was super fun. I was scared the entire time, Mm -hmm. but loving it. Yeah. But at one point, a big wave like just pushed me and I was so little. It just knocked me into the boat and I just sloshed around in the middle of everybody's feet for a while and then managed to pull myself back up to the side. And you were like, yeah. <laughs> oh, my God. Just, like, just nasty water all in my mouth. Just snot coming out of your face. <laughs> You're like so happy. Though. I was totally OK with it. That's but amazing. I was like, I don't know. I yeah. mean, it's, it can be kind of dangerous. For sure. Yeah. But so fun. But so fun. Mm -hmm. So I don't know if you knew that. I didn't know this because I don't whitewater raft, Mm -hmm. you know. Internationally, there is a classification system for whitewater rivers. I do know that. Did you know that? Yeah. You probably did because you did like a training. I fell out in the class four rapid gen. Oh my God, it was the class four. It was crazy. That's really high. (laughs) Well, there's internationally, there's six classifications. Yeah. But I guess... The, in the U.S., it goes up to 10. Oh, is it in 10? The, in the, yeah, the Colorado River. Oh, it's like there's a there. part at the Grand Canyon that goes to 10. <laughs> there's this, like, one, this one is 10. <laughs> but, but this one goes to 11. <laughs> I feel like there should be one that goes to 11. That's Niagara. <laughs> well, okay. So let's get it. We're going to talk about Niagara for a second anyway in a minute. Well, let me talk about the six classifications. And nobody fully agrees. Yeah. Well, I mean... These, I guess somebody had to agree on because these are kind of set, but I don't even know because, listen, this is the definition. Class one, moving water with a few riffles (laughs) and small waves, few or no obstructions. All right. I mean, what's a riffle? Somebody could be like, that's a riffle. Another person could be like, that's a wave. I don't know. I'm just saying. Yeah. Super. Class two is easy rapids with some smaller waves, clear channels that are obvious without scouting. Some maneuvering might be required. Cool. Okay. Yeah. Class. Oh, (laughs) I put class two twice. (laughs) (laughs) That's fine. It deserves saying twice. Just and then you'll do class three three times. Guys, listen. Let's do it. I didn't do class three. So it's more than class two. But less than class four. Here's class four. Perfect. Just some good edit. Some good notes right here. (laughs) Class four is. Long, difficult rapids with constricted passages that often require complex maneuvering in turbulent water. The course may be hard to determine and scouting is often necessary. That is exactly what I fell out in, 100%. Okay. Yeah. That's, I mean, that's something right it there. Was so- it was something, Jen. Okay. It was something. <laughs> well, I'm proud of you. I'm glad you're okay. Thank you. Class five, extremely difficult, long, and very violent rapids with highly congested routes, which should be scouted from shore. Rescue conditions are difficult, and there is a significant hazard to life in the event of a mishap. The upper limit of what is possible in a commercial raft. Yes. Yeah. The river that we were on was like a class three and class four, and we were the safety boat. So we went down first, 
And then you're supposed to sit and wait for everybody to go over that one rapid because it was like the class four rapid. Mm -hmm. But our guide was like, you guys have done this before. Let's go into the rapid. We'll do some 360s. And I was like, cool, you know, because I was a teenager. I thought it was really neat. He was he was probably only like 20. This guy. Anyway, we went back in and we were turning around and then the boat got caught. And then I went out and everybody went forward. Oh, my God. Yeah. Okay, I, I looked it up because I messed up my notes. So basically, <laughs> level classification one is easy, then medium. Three is Get difficult. It. Four is advanced, Megan. That's right, girl. That's crazy. Five is expert. So let's read six is extreme. Mm-mm. Rapids are extreme, technically difficult, powerful, and unpredictable. They are rarely paddled. And if they are paddled successfully, they're usually downgraded to a five. <laughs> so <laughs> so they're, there's they're that. like, you made it. Therefore, uh, your boat is intact. So you are intact. So is there even a, a six? Right. I guess if it would be ones that nobody's ever done, completed. Hmm. And it says that grade six is the river cannot be paddled without severe risk to life. Makes sense. So how did we get to 10 U.S.? Yeah, I don't know about the U.S. I definitely know that the classification system that I learned is that six that you just talked about. Yeah. Because, but I was like looking yeah, it up 10. and somebody was like, yeah, the one at the Grand Canyon is a 10. I'm like, mm, that's not real. Not if people are doing that's it. That's some kind of bro. Yeah. He's just like, that's just. Yeah, America. bro. I go on the Colorado and it's, <laughs> it's like 10s all the way. <laughs> <laughs> well, I went on a 12. The 12. I w- that one was a 12 for sure. Definitely. <laughs> so uh, Anyway, good times. Like I said, very subjective. Mm hmm. I guess it's just flexing. So much flex. So much flex. So I also looked up the most dangerous rapids in the world. Yes. And there is a site called explore.com. There's actually a few, but this one had the 15. I didn't do all 15. Get it together. Most dangerous rapids. Are you ready? We're going to start in Chile. Chile. The Terminator. What? (laughs) I'm going to say this all wrong. Futaleufu River. The name means... Big, big river. That's right on the nose. I love it. Yep. It's known in whitewater circles as one of the most exciting and challenging rivers in the world. It's a class four or five, depending on who's flexing who, in the Terminator section, which some experienced kayakers call the most difficult commercially run rapid in the world. It's six miles. It takes about three hours. Three hours of terror. (laughs) Or excitement, I guess. (laughs) Or excitement, whatever. There's also Mickey's or the Okoe. The Okoe. Okoe. Have you heard of it in in Tennessee? Yes. Okay, good. It's in the Cherokee National Forest. Yes. It's the most popular whitewater rafting destination in the U.S. because of its more than 20 continuous rapids. And there are more than 300,000 people that go every year. They're categorized as a class three, but the Mickey's class is a four or the Mickey's is a class four. Is that where you were? That's where I was, Jen. Are you serious? Yes. Oh, nice. <laughs> well, let me just tell you that two people died in 2011. Oh, and those were the first fatalities in six years. And in 2013, there were two deaths in two days. And in 2020, Tennessee led the nation for the most whitewater river paddler deaths. Mm, that I mean, there's so many whitewater tour companies up there. Uh-huh. I'm telling you, Jen, like I, at, at like 14 years old, had decided, like, I'm just going to go live there. What if you just lived in Tennessee? I w- uh, and just, you some, were... uh, just some like mountain home. With your cutoffs. <laughs> playing. I would have learned the banjo at that point. <laughs> and your never nudes. Yeah. Okay. The next one is, and I was happy to see this on the list, the Whirlpool Rapids Gorge in Niagara River. Hey. Yeah. The New York side. 
So the New York State Department of Parks prohibits launching a boat from the park property, which is the only feasible access from the U.S. side to the rapids above the Whirlpool. So the Niagara Gorge, and I talked about this a little bit, not specifically this, Mm -hmm. is a deadly section of exploratory rapids. And as the water travels through, it reaches about 30 miles per hour. I think we did talk about that, creating a class six Whirlpool Rapids, some of the most extreme in the entire world. No, thank you. That's where freaking what's-her-face threw Annie threw her cat in the barrel. Not cool. Anyway. Snowdrop or snowdew or something. <laughs> I saw snowy. Snowy. Cat. Yeah. Poor, oh. uh, that cat looked... Rough. It looked like it had brain damage I saw, by that when, point. After you told the story and then I was putting it up and I saw the picture, I was like, is she just holding his head up? <laughs> She's just like, she's it's just still alive. She's, it's, it's fine. fine. It's fine. So even so, it says a commercial rafting venture was attempted in 1976. And according to American Whitewater, that came to a stop when on their 12th run, the raft flipped and four people drowned. I was going to say, just everybody died. It, after they threw all the animals in there and over the edge. <laughs> Jeez. Anyway, yeah, keeping with the theme of the Niagara. So Victoria Falls is another one, and that's in uh, Zimbabwe, the Zambezi River. I feel like I've talked about this before because it has all the, when I was talking about uh, wonders of the world. It sounds familiar, yes. Natural wonders of the world. Mm -hmm. It's called the wildest one-day whitewater trip in the world. (laughs) Oh, that's a lot of Ws. Yeah, and associated with the term stairway to heaven, you'll begin by paddling out from under the mist of Victoria Falls one of the seven natural wonders of the world. From there, you'll take some of the most notable class five rapids anywhere. They call it the devil's toilet bowl and commercial suicide. (laughs) (laughs) It starts out so lovely. And then devil's toilet bowl. Straight down the shitter. Yeah. (laughs) So it's about 17 miles downstream. It's a mixture of huge flows, water around 80 degrees and significant drops followed by a mile of flat water. So after you like poop yourself, (laughs) then you can relax nice the next one is in british columbia it's the bidwell or chilco river it's a class four whitewater it's the longest stretch of commercially run whitewater in north america drop about three thousand feet in altitude Mm. yeah you start at the top of a mountain forest and go down into a desert canyon that's like the log flume at like six flags or something (laughs) right (laughs) the log ride the log ride the log flume whatever it's called <laughs> five people died in a trip in 1987 there because that's the thing when you're in a raft i mean it's like a bunch of people so you're just yeah it's not good odds um what do you have to hold on to the person next to you that's and, it yeah that rope on the side that's the thing i think that got me about the rafting is that's why i just flew i mean i just flew inside the middle because there was nothing to hold on to just the slippery rubber raft just slipping all over the place. I bet I had huge hair at that point, too. I can only imagine. <laughs> so the wind probably grabbed my hair. And it just, I flew. Like a sail. Like a sail. <laughs> Aquanet. There's another one in Maryland. It's the Upper Yo. Yow. Yo. Y-O-U-G-H. Yo. Yeah. But it's River. Like, but Upper it's like... Yo River in Maryland. It's a class three to five. It just skips from three to five rapids, and it has a vertical drop of 115 feet per mile for five miles. Yikes. Isn't that wild? The Inga Rapids in the Congo River, it's the world's largest and deadliest rapids. You're nodding your head. You're like, like, I did that one, Jen. (laughs) (laughs) That one was a 13. (laughs) In 2011, freestyle kayaker Steve Fisher. You know what? We were buddies, man. (laughs) 
anyway, his team of three other kayakers are the first to survive the Inga Rapids. And according to National Geographic, it named Fisher an Adventure of the Year in 2013 for that. That's hard for. You got to do these things to be like, to get noticed, to get, I don't know, in National Geographic. I covered my walls with him. That's what I was. But I like this. He said, um, Fisher said that they didn't conquer the rapids. We navigated from top to bottom without a portage. At best, we survived. I had tears in my eyes at the end. That's, that's, I like that, you know? Yeah. I like when athletes or people who do these like adventure sports uh-huh. are just really truthful. Yeah. Like they're not like, yeah, you know, I just, I, I went back on my skills. I thought about, we've been practicing for this. You know, I've been really prepared. Like instead he was like, I was fucking crying. I vomited three times. It was awful. Uh, all right. Next. It's perfect. Idaho, the Lochsa River. Mm-hmm. Everyone's like, that's not how we say it in Idaho. It literally means rough water. It's Perfect. one of the best spring whitewater rafting runs in North America. I mean, commercial rafting companies run the river. It's dangerous and has taken several lives, according to American Whitewater. Oh. Godzilla, the Rio <laughs> Apano River in Ecuador, also oh called God. the Godzilla. So you got to know it's it's got to be something. Legendary. Mm-hmm. It's also called, it translates to the River of the Sacred Waterfalls. And it varies from a class two to a four. It can kick up 15 foot waves. I thought that was pretty crazy. Yeah, that's around the waterfalls. Because I guess, yeah, the waterfalls are so big. 15 foot waves are no joke. Yeah, it's crazy. Another one is the section four of the Chattooga River. And that's, you should know that Well, Georgia and South Carolina. Oh, Chattooga. Chattooga River. Section four, I guess it's a, it's a section of it. Yeah. It's the best known dangerous rapids. Perfect. Or in the area. The more legends exist about five falls of all Ch- Chattooga than almost any other set of rapids. I feel super embarrassed that I don't I don't know any of those. You don't know the legends? I don't Actually, know. I don't either. I didn't look it up. It's supposedly one of the most difficult sections being commercially run, and it has taken many lives. Oh. That is, uh, that's not cool. Almost done. God's house in Nepal. It's the Karnali River. It's a class five, mm. which we know five is like probably the most. It's the last because if it's six, then nobody's going down it. Right. Alive, and that it's, is. they say it's the most definitive Himalayan whitewater adventure. Santo Domingo River, which is in Mexico, is known as the steepest kayakable river in the world. It's more steep than that 3,000 foot. <laughs> it's the holy grail of big drop steep creaking that's what they say the kayakers creaking creaking it's like this is kayaker language this is great i'm loving it and then there's the white nile in uganda which we're going to talk about in a little bit which is they say the finest class five rapids in the world they're classy they're classy as if okay (laughs) some stories story time story time i'm ready so we got some tragedies yeah so these are probably you know when i was looking up different Crazy stuff that have happened in canoeing uh, and kayaking. I came across a couple of stories that are very sad and I guess older. So they kind of helped change legislation or change rules for kayaking, especially with groups of kids. Mm. In June 1978, there was a group of 12 to 14 year old students that went out for an end of year canoe trip. And by the way, this is called the Lake Tamiskamine, I think is how mm. you say it. Tragedy. This was a boy's school. It was St. John's, an Anglican 
I can't say that ever, right? <laughs> Private school, uh, boarding school in Claremont, Ontario, near Toronto. And they really wanted to build character with the kids. So they really stressed outdoor education. Hmm. They were traveling in four 22-foot canoes. And says they were on the border of the Ontario-Quebec border, 350 kilometers north of Ottawa. The winds had been light when they began their voyage on June 11th, but the, they changed hmm. and picked up. And the students... Or I guess in these, they say heavily laden canoes. So those big canoes. It's like it's like when you go to camp and they have just yeah. like the heaviest canoes ever. Yes, yes. And so these big canoes just in the wind, they capsize because it's kind of hard to balance in a canoe anyway. Yes. Right. That's why I like outriggers because you got the thing, right? Mm -hmm. You can kind of balance yourself. Anyway, 12 of the boys and one adult died. Oh, my God. The lake was four degrees Celsius. Oh. And at that temperature, the average person would not survive more than 40 minutes. There were 18 survivors that were rescued the next day. No. After being spotted by a passing helicopter. Oh, my gosh. So on June 13, they were brought by float plane or helicopter to a nearby town in Quebec to meet parents. And this was all, you know... A huge tragedy. But despite that, the parents rallied around the school, they say, which continued in operation for another decade before closing. So I didn't read much more that followed after this. It was mm -hmm. just this big tragedy where these kids, you know, they shouldn't have gone out. Well, I guess when they went out, it wasn't that windy. But yeah. 1978. I mean, I feel like they should have known the weather. Maybe, yeah, checked yeah. It. you know, they should have been able to predict that. But anyway, there was another... Similar type disaster in Lime Bay in 1993, March of 1993. And this happened in the UK. It was a group of eight teenagers. They were between 16 and 17 years old. And a teacher from the Southway Community College in Plymouth, UK. Mm. They were with two instructors from the St. Albans Outdoor Center. And they had planned a kayak trip across Lime Bay in the Red Mirage Scout kayaks. That's oh, okay. what they were called. It was, they say, a sunny Sunday morning. The group set out. It's always like it was perfect. The weather was fine. And it was supposed to take about two hours. And they had to cross this open stretch of tidal water. They didn't tell the Coast Guard before they left. And this guy, Joe Stoddard, he was the Adventure Center manager. He got worried about the group because they were taking way longer than two hours to get back. Mm. But he didn't inform the authorities. Oh. Instead, he waited two hours because he was trying to do his own search. He went up to the clifftops like in his vehicle mm -hmm. and tried to look with like binoculars to see if he could see the boats yeah. and try to find the group. But he didn't tell anybody. Oh, no. So that time went on. And then at, at about, two, they say, 2.45, a local fisherman found an empty kayak floating about two and a half miles or four kilometers southeast of that area. And he radioed the Coast Guard. The Coast Guard called around to see if anyone out there was missing a kayak. So that took another couple of hours. They later pointed out, like, if the boats had some sort of identifying feature, like a name of the center or mm -hmm. phone number or whatever, it would have been a lot easier. So at four, after four, like almost 4.15, they finally sent out a lifeboat. And then they also sent out a helicopter. They first rescued the group's teacher and another male instructor, and that was made at about 5.38 p.m. Jeez. So you can see how many hours this That's, is taking. Is it like six hours later? Uh -huh. or, yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
And then from about 5.45 to 6.45, helicopters picked up the rest of the surviving students and a female instructor. And because of all these errors and circumstances, four of the teenagers drowned. Mm. They had run into difficulties, I guess, right after they left. One of the kayaks got swamped with water. Mm. The group with the whole group got swept out to sea where their kayaks all swamped. There was one person, I think it was one of the instructors that like tried to keep their spirits up. They were all holding on to like a flipped over kayak and like singing songs and trying to like just hang on for hours and hours. Mm. And it was really cold too. They found out later that the instructors or the from the agency from the center that had gone out with them had very minimal training and they just only started working there so they didn't even really know what they were doing and that when they went out when they capsized one of the people from the center told the teens not to inflate so i guess they had bvs on like those ones you inflate oh right like yeah instead of like wearing actual life jackets right right that would just make them float. So she was said, she told them not to inflate their their BVs mm-hmm. because she felt that this would discourage them, which what? I'm like, no, yeah. immediately inflate. I feel like they tell you on the flight, you know, like you mm-hmm. pull down the tab or if that doesn't work, you start inflating with the tube. And because they were in the water for so long, they became, they got waterlogged. And when yeah. they tried to put air in them, they couldn't inflate them. Yeah. It's like, what the hell? So the subsequent investigation led to the prosecution of the parent company and the center manager. And the owner of the center was convicted of gross negligence, manslaughter. I guess it was the only successful conviction involving a corporation in the UK. And the owner was jailed for four years, but his sentence got cut to two years on an appeal. Mm. It also push the government to end self-regulation of outdoor education centers. So these activity centers, or they called it the Young Person Safety Act of 1995, was passed through Parliament. And so an independent licensing authority or the Adventure Activities Licensing Authority was formed, funded by the Department of Education. And then they basically put a bunch of restrictions. So they'd probably go around and check like their boats and stuff like that and give them like licenses or something to be able to do those things. Yeah. So one of the things that said in the when I was reading about it is it used to be really cheap to take kids on these kind of field trips. But now it's expensive because well, of all the <laughs> but it's like, but do you want to live like which one is better? Yeah. 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 So there's that. And then, you know, I was looking up some kayaking incidents that happened in Costa Rica because of Camille's, you know, that she was in Costa Rica. Yeah. And I found out this terrible thing happened in October of 2018. It's just so bad. There were 14 friends, all guys, all from Florida, Miami, I believe. Mm -hmm. They went to Costa Rica for a bachelor party. And one of the high, so they had this total, you know, this itinerary of all the yeah. things they were going to do. And one of the highlights was to go whitewater rafting in the Narano, I think, river. It's described as located just west of Rio Severge. The Narano River's white water covers about 50 miles or 80 kilometers of stunning terrain, originating at the foothills of the Talamanca mountain range. The river dips and dives through tight canyon passageways before meeting the Pacific coast east of the Cuepos. There you go. Sounds beautiful, right? Sounds delightful. So they signed up for that. They're like, this sounds great. It's going to be so much fun. We're just going to do it out. Bachelor party. It's going to be so fun. So there were 14 friends and five guides Mm -hmm. all together. According to Survivor, 
Anthony Castro. When we first arrived, it was windy and raining, and the professional tour guides advised that we would wait a bit before going out onto the water. Less than an hour later, we got into the okay to head out, and the 14 of us separated into three different rafts. Within five minutes of being out on the river, all three rafts capsized, and everyone ended up in the water. No. Authorities said rains had swelled the river and a flood alert was in place. Our bodies, and this is also from Castro, it says, our bodies ricocheted against the rocks in the water while struggling to survive. Most of us were ultimately able to grab a hold of rocks or barriers in or around the water and wait for rescue teams to get us or get to us. Unfortunately, not all of us were so lucky. Four of our dear friends drowned in those waters. So one of the victims was the brother of the groom-to-be. Oh, no. The groom-to-be was one of was on one of the overturned rafts but survived. The Costa Rican Red Cross said that the accident occurred in the Liverpool de Cuepos near the west coast of the country. It's about 50 kilometers south of the capital, San Jose. Mm-hmm. It said 12 of its workers were in the vicinity at the time and assisted with the rescue. The four tourists who died were Ernesto Sierra, Jorge Caso, Sergio Lorenzo, and Andre Dennis all from Miami for the bachelor party. The Costa Rican guide, his name was Kevin Thompson Reed, was reportedly described as one of the company's most skilled workers. Oh, no. So four of the tourists and one guide guide all drowned. So, you know, obviously the families were devastated. They blamed the lax regulation, enforcement, and poor emergency rescue resources which they said contributed to the death of the four men. They said, we don't want to hurt the economy of Costa Rican people. We just want proper regulations, proper equipment, and enforcement of these dangerous businesses so that other families don't have to suffer. No one should have been on the river that day. Needless to say, the wedding was postponed. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. I know, right? That's rough. That's really rough. I mean, it happened not that long ago. So, yeah. anyway, you can go go look that one up. Those were like some three big ones that I read. Mm-hmm. And then there's a ton of stories. There's just so many stories of people who disappeared or drowned, like a couple went out, you know, one drowned, one they never found. You know, there's just like a lot of those stories. They're all tragic and terrible. And But there were two that really stood out mm-hmm. that I want to talk about right now. Very terrible, but kind of more along the lines of our podcast. Ben Stooksbury, 32, of Mount Shasta, California, and Chris Korvulik, I think, 24 of Rogue River, Oregon. So they're world-class kayakers. They've gone a lot of the... They probably did the sixes that then went to fives. They're those guys. yeah. And they've been to the Himalayas, North Pakistan, India, those waterfalls in Brazil, all kinds of places. Costa Rica, they've done it. You name it, they've done it. They had a sponsorship with Eddie Bauer to do the first ascent line of outdoor gear they had partnered they also partnered with this guy called Hendrik Coetzee he's south and south african outdoorsman and author and he's also like a major whitewater guide and he's based in Uganda and they went out to document the white water of the white nile and congo and they were going to be the first boat to go on those white waters of the lakuga river mm. and they also through this whole thing and campaigning and their with their funding they wanted to bring attention to the crisis of millions of people dying from poor water quality in the region. Oh, okay. So there was a good, you know, yeah. a good cause. So they knew Hendrick had a really good reputation with extreme kayaking. But even so, they spent all like months planning this expedition together. 
but they didn't meet him until they actually got to Uganda. And this was in October of 2010. Okay. So he was based in Jinja, I'm not J-I-N-J-A. Mm-hmm. And he started showing them the ropes of African kayaking, which just sounds like a really fun adventure, right? Yeah. They said he wanted to take us from the snow-capped peaks into the deepest, darkest, steamiest jungle. He wanted to prove to us that this place... Considered by Western media as one of the most dangerous places on earth, we would find some of the nicest, most hospitable people we've ever met. For two days, he took them down this Murchison Falls section of the White Nile, and he taught them how to tap their boats to make noise and stay out of the eddies where hippos might attack them. Oh, yeah. So they would make the noise to keep things away and keep clear of the banks where uh, there were crocodiles. Because there's like all kinds of stuff in the waters there, right? These guys said we were used to white waters that could kill us, but the idea that something unseen and alive was in the water, you know, or could like kill them or eat them was like a whole new thing. But over time, they got comfortable with it. They learned how to do it. They, you know, had been going for a while. And this was on December 7th. They saw these three little crocodiles in the water. They were just like three feet long. They're like, okay. It had been raining for a couple of days and they hadn't cooked a meal. They just finished more than 30 miles of white water. Wow. And they had still 200 miles of flat water. And they were going through these rolling elephant grass covered hills. And they said they were in the middle of a stretch of about 100 feet wide, paddling really close together, so close that their blades would touch if they got out of sync. Mm-hmm. And Hendrick was in the middle. Stokesbury was on the left and Korbalik was a little bit behind on the right. Okay. Korbalik said, I glanced over to measure what that we were not paddling towards or away from each other just to kind of make sure they were keeping their right distance. Mm-hmm. And just in my periphery, I saw the crocodile come out of the water and he got onto Hendrick's left side, just the left shoulder with its mouth. No. Said later talking to villagers, they figured the crocodile was at least 15 feet long and weighed up to two tons. With no time to do anything but say, oh my God, Hendrick was gone, hauled beneath the green water, never to be seen again. What? Chris Korbalik said, the crocodile just pulled him right underwater. He told the Associated Press in a telephone interview, I think we both were just in complete shock and disbelief and absolutely horrified at what had just happened. So they said that they watched the overturned boat shaking for about 20 seconds as the crocodile pulled him from the tight-fitted cockpit, because you know how it like wraps around them. Realizing that they could do nothing, they paddled as fast as they could less than a mile downstream to the village where they caught his boat as it floated by without even a scratch. Oh, my God. Yeah. He was never found presumed dead. That is awful. Isn't that awful? So on the Today Show, they were interviewed and they said they will never again paddle the Kunga out of respect for Hendrick. But I was like, or just because no, just because I wouldn't do it. Yeah. Yeah. Out of respect, but also out of fear and out of like, you know, shock, PTSD, everything. Because that was their their friend, you know? That's insane. It's insane, right? Yeah. That's like a lot of therapy. That's a lot. Afterwards. A lot. I was thinking for just a split second that it's similar to like a Gustav story, but like that's like Gustav's cousin or something. That's some crazy stuff. Yeah, because this was 2010. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, my God. I know. It's crazy. Anyway, so I won't go into crocodiles because we've talked about them a lot, but I'm going to go into another story. Mm -hmm. This was in April of 2012. And there was this guy, Anthony Hensley. He's 37. This is in Illinois. 
He worked for a company that provided swans to keep geese away from property. On a fine Saturday morning, this guy, who's a married father of two, he went out on his kayak to cross a pond at a residential complex in Des Plaines, just outside of Chicago, where he was tending the birds. One of the swans charged at his kayak, capsized it, and then proceeded to kind of attack him. Oh, my God. He tried to swim to shore, but eyewitnesses told the sheriff's investigators that the swamp appeared to actively block him. (laughs) So the sheriff said, I find myself still scratching my head. This is truly one of the one of the ones that keeps you from saying I've seen everything now. So he was wearing boots and heavy clothing, and he basically drowned trying to swim back to shore. Mm -hmm. No. Yes, he could not get back. What's even worse, Megan, is there were people watching the whole thing. No. And they saw him come up to the surface a few times. This is like from eyewitnesses. Before he went under again and did not resurface, he was pulled from the water by rescuers 45 minutes later after searching. No one tried to, like... No. Help him? No. Now, I don't know the circumstances. Sure. It could have been, like, elderly people or kids or, you know... And, know what to do, yeah. And honestly, you should never put your own life at risk if it's not something you can do. do. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I totally you know, believe that. But they say his kayak wasn't upside down. This is from a witness, but it was like upwards. Like maybe part of it was submerged. You could see the tip of it, they said. And they said his death was ruled an accident. So there was a lot of coverage of this. I feel like that's an an animal attack. This is, this is an animal attack, but I mean, it's, they both were. Yeah. So I'm saying like all kinds of things can happen on a kayak, but a swan? I thought you were going to go geese. When you said uh-uh. geese, I thought, oh, the geese probably attacked. So I read this article in the BBC mm-hmm. about it. There's a, like I said, there's a few articles about this. I particularly like the BBC's mm-hmm. article, which I always love the BBC. Oh, they're always good. So according to an ornithologist, the swan's aggressive reaction is typical for the species, the mute swan, when defending a nest. Mm. And they said it's presumably a male swan and it's presumably paired and it's set up for home for the spring. And this is from Chris Perrins, Her Majesty's Swan Warden. Oh, that's right. <laughs> Can you like, Hold on. what's your job? Oh, I'm Her Majesty's Swan Warden. I'm sorry, I don't think we've met. I'm Her Majesty's Swan. Well, now it's His Majesty's Swan. <laughs> and Chris is a retired Oxford ornithologist. I just am like, mm. how cool are you? Like, I just care of Her Majesty's Swans. Or his majesty at this point. Right. Yeah. yeah. It's going to defend that territory. The males are fierce in defense of their nest, especially during the spring nesting season, April to June. But like, that's mean. We're going to talk about swans for a second because <sighs> that's our podcast <laughs> and that's what we do. That's the truth. Here we go. The birds, the swans, are one of the largest waterfowl in North America and Europe. They can weigh up to 13 kilograms or 28 pounds. And with have a wingspan of up to 2.4 meters or 8 feet. 8 feet. That's pretty big. They're among the heaviest flying birds. In April 2010, a swan on the River Cam in England made the news after repeatedly attacking rowers. It's nicknamed Mr. Asbo. Have you heard about it? It's named after the antisocial behavior orders (laughs) issued by the UK courts at the time. (laughs) I have pictures of Mr. Asbo and Mm -hmm. the offspring both. Yeah, yeah. Because they... They relocated, air quotes, to an undisclosed location, Mr. Asbo. But there's like his descendants are still attacking people. Yeah. It's still showing up in that same spot, right? Yes. Same spot. So I guess after all these years, they're still wanting more of them to be 
removed because people keep getting attacked and the pictures are kind of hilarious. Sorry, the, I put two of them in. That's <laughs> so funny. The reason I know uh, just like I hear a lot of swan stories is my dad has a little river behind his house. Oh, right, right, right. Yeah. And he feeds these swans uh-huh. and they come back every year and he, it's like a big thing for him. And so, oh, they're beautiful. Yeah, there are swans. Where uh, there's a pond where my in my where my sister lives, mm-hmm. but there's only one because I think one of the pair, one of them died. Right, and they so like, it's mate still for life okay. Yeah, yeah. But I didn't know that people bring them to get rid of the geese. I, yeah, I didn't know that either. So I'll talk about that in a second That's too. So they say that incidents are very rare. And this is from John Houston of the Abbotsbury Swannery in Dorset, where there are a thousand swans, but no recorded attacks on humans in the colony's 600-year history. Oh, wow. So there you go. Maybe they're just the nice swans. They're super nice. Yeah, that's just their their culture. He says, if you approach a swan nest on the river, they might get aggressive and hiss or flap their wings, but the danger is overrated and it's a myth that they will break your leg or arm with their wings. Oh, dang. That's a that's a thing people say? Uh-huh. He said, they're not that strong and it's mostly show and bluster, but some people have been injured from them. So I'm going to talk a little bit about mute swans. All the mute swans in North America are descendants from swans imported from Europe from the mid-1800s through the early 1900s to put on these large estates. They brought them over. They're like, they're so beautiful. City parks and zoos, but escapees established breeding populations and are now established in the Northeast, Mid-Atlantic, Great Lakes, and Pacific Northwest. Mute swans form long-lasting pair bonds. The reputation for monogamy along with their elegant white plumage has helped establish them as a symbol of love in many cultures. I mean, you know, that's cool. The mute swan is reported to mate for life. However, changing of mates does occur infrequently, and swans will remate if their partner dies. So this is interesting. If a male loses his mate and pairs with a young female, she joins him on his territory. So he moves, she moves into his apartment. But if he mates with an older female, they go to her apartment. Matriarchy for the win. <laughs> <laughs> if a female loses her mate, she remates quickly and usually chooses a younger male. <laughs> <laughs> She's like, I'm not moving. It's all about love. This is very love based. I love it. This is great. So also, I thought this was kind of cool that the, you know, the black knob at the base yes. uh, of the male mute swans bills well that'll swell during the breeding season and become mm-hmm. noticeably larger than the females and that's the only way you can tell the sexes apart oh. during is just during that time yeah apparently they have quite enormous appetites a maryland study found they ate up to eight pounds a day of submerged aquatic vegetation mm. removing food and habitat for other species faster than the grasses could recover oh no yeah mm-hmm. not so good Based on banding records, the oldest known mute swan in North America was a male and at least 26 years and nine months old when he was found in Rhode Island in 1988. Wow. And that's where he was banded in 1962. Wow. It's crazy, right? Yeah. And in most cases, they're considered an invasive species mm-hmm. and are, can be very destructive to native aquatic species. Vegetations and stuff. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Yeah, vegetation, veg- uh, like plant species, not other, I mean humans. <laughs> <laughs> so also using swans to get rid of geese is a very bad idea oh. because they basically just kind of replace 
the problem because they're, they're like... also aggressive. <laughs> they say that they're not as like funky, dirty, like they, you know, how yeah. geese like poo everywhere. Dirty. And you definitely still want to like keep the goose thing at bay, but mm-hmm. not by getting other swans. You're they just, say you yeah. just get a collie dog and let them like chase them off. Oh, yeah. There you go. There you go. And they also say mute swans tend to use their power of their wings to attack rather than their beaks, which I'm kind of okay with that. I'd rather be hit with a wing than a beak. Just honestly, just some like, like Beyonce hair, you know, it's <laughs> like coming at you. You're like, yeah, I mean, bring it's, it. it's like scary, but I, <laughs> I prefer that over a beak Yeah, any day. So John Faborg, I think is a biologist at the University of Missouri and president of the American Ornithologist Union. And he has known people who were hurt by swan attacks. He said, I'm sure swans can do major damage given they are so big. In this case, in Chicago, he says, it's understandable that someone in a river with their clothes and shoes on were unable to overpower a swan and mm-hmm. swim to shore. Especially, I'm thinking just, you know, if they're not a good swimmer. You know, some people are yeah. just not used to swimming in general. And they panic. Like, he was panicking, probably, being attacked. Yeah. And, you know, people tend to panic in the water anyway when things aren't going well. and just a combination of stuff. It's very sad. Now we're going to do some quick safety first for kayakers. So this like is it. this is how we're going to end this episode. So you need to take some safety training, okay? Mm-hmm. Listen, there's free courses or it's very cheap. I did a say we did a water safety training for our team for paddling. Go do it. Make your kids go with you. The American Canoe Association has a library with all kinds of stuff. There's also the what are they called? The Water Sports Foundation or the WSF. They also have a program, paddling.com. They also have a safety series. You can get it all online. Also, wear a life jacket. Mm. The Coast Guard data shows 85%. Remember I said that earlier of all paddle, store, paddle sport drownings were not wearing a life jacket. Get your PFD, folks. Let's do it. Be prepared to get wet. Listen, when you flip over and Megan can tell you it's not fun. When it's like, yeah, be ready for some cold water exposure. Don't think that you're going to get in a kayak and go on the water and you might stay dry. (laughs) Listen, it's just like, be ready. Check conditions. Check the weather. Make sure that the current weather conditions are good. Make sure you have the experience and the skill level for where you're going to be paddling at. Smart. Uh Uh-huh. And also file a float plan. Share a simple float plan with friends and family that includes your anticipated departure and return times and location. Mm. Ask them to alert authorities if you're not back on time. I like that. That's nice. And lastly, always paddle sober. (laughs) (laughs) Don't drink and paddle. Period. I mean, maybe just a little Bailey's on ice. What? Can you handle that? (laughs) But why do they make it with a cup holder, Jen? That's for your water. It's not for a margarita. All right. Organization to support. Let's hear it. I kind of looked up like what nonprofits paddlers love the most. And some really cool ones came up. But this one got a very high score on Charity Navigator, which you taught me to always check. <laughs> it's super important. It is. And I really thought it was a really nice thing. It's called Heroes on Water. It's based in Allen, Texas. And the link is heroesonthewater.org. I like it. And their motto is paddle, fish, heal. It's more than just a tagline. It's what we do. Heroes on the Water successfully applies a simple solution to a complex issue surrounding the wellness of physical and mental health of our veterans and our first responders. We have countless testimonies from participants who have experienced and continue to experience the restorative power of our events. It's all free. It's all to get people outside, 
to they can go by themselves. They can go with a group. You know, the outdoors and mental health. It's a it's a good thing. That's great. Yeah. Yeah. I thought it was a really cool organization, but that's it. That's what I got for you today. I love it. Yeah. That's really great. (laughs) Go check it out. And I think even if they're based in Texas, you can they can help you from anywhere. Yeah. Because they'll hook you up with other organizations organizations that they know of. Yeah. So, Megan. Yes, Dan. What are we going to put in our emergency preparedness kit? I've been mulling this over Mm -hmm. and it it Mm -hmm. originally came to me or kind of early on when you were talking and then you talking about swans really just cemented it for me (laughs) just really like yep this is what it's gonna be Uh uh all right so what we need is a boat that's not gonna flip over and i feel like those love boat like canal boats that look like swans that are shaped like swans they're shaped like swans i love it that's what we need we need a sturdy love canal swan shaped boat Yes, because it'll scare yeah. the swans away because yes. they'll think it's a giant swan. You're going to be safe from the swans. Uh-huh. There's The sides cover you from crocodile attack. Oh, yeah. Right? And it's not going to flip. They don't flip. I would I would think not to go on any crazy rapids in that. Probably not, no. Probably this would be yeah. for, like, very flat. I mean, already you're... You're, you're in class one. You're, you're class one. And it's a class wine, two tops. Wine and cheese tour. <laughs> okay. I like it. Sunset tour. Sunset tour. Sunset tour. Somebody else is operating it for you, probably. Uh huh. You know, a little uh-huh. gondola style action. I like it. Yeah. Uh-huh. And that's like what it. we need. Just to remember, like, you know what? We're going to go out on the water. Let's have a calm time. I think you should have, like, on the side, some actual, like, wings yes. that, if needed, you could flap them out. Like, just big? to kind of, yeah. Just yeah. to kind of, like, yeah. Make sure, like, no waterfowl are coming your way. Agreed. Yeah. Agreed. But yeah, I think um, I think that's what you need. I like it. Mm-hmm. I'm all about staying on the class one, class two. It's so much fun. Let's do yeah, it. I, I did go on a trip in Colorado once. It was a class one. They called it the wine and cheese tour uh-huh. on the Colorado River. Nice. It was super low key. It was all old people <laughs> and me <laughs> and you and me. It uh-huh. was so random. And it was after this whole like rafting accident. So you were like, trying to like build later. yourself back yeah, up. Yeah, I was trying to be like, it's going to be I cool. love that you went on a wine and cheese. I don't remember. <laughs> we went to Colorado for something. It was like a family trip uh-huh. for somebody's maybe wedding or I don't know. Because mm-hmm. I have an aunt that lives in Colorado or lived in Colorado at the time. And yeah, it was like we went and our guides were super hot, but like oh, way older mm-hmm. than me, like really inappropriately older than me. And but I had like the biggest crush. Of and, course. Yeah, we went on these. You're just like eating <laughs> your cheese and like making eye contact so with them. <laughs> and I remember that my mom had like told one of them oh, God. the story. Oh god. You know? And so they were like trying to make me feel better about it. And I was I was just trying to be I was like a like nineteen twenty maybe. You were, I, I was going to ask if you're old enough I to have like, any wine on this. No, yeah, I was not. I was definitely not old enough. Maybe I was a little bit younger, maybe like 17. I don't know. But I, I was it was like that age where you're like, don't talk about me. You're like, stop talking. Stop talking about me. Don't say anything. <laughs> uh, and yeah, she said something to them. And then you just got all red faced and yeah, teary eyed. You're like, and then one of them was like joking around on the boat like, oh, you know, this is a class one. It's fine. Well, it fell out of the boat. Oh my God. <laughs> and I was just like, you know, I mean, he obviously survived. Yeah, it was okay. But 
I was like, can we not have an accident on this like very low key? I mean, it was like being on a lake. Right. You just kind of glided along, though. The guide fell in the water. Yeah. He was like being silly. He was Um, trying to be mm -hmm. silly and like everything's fine. And then he like fell out. Mm -hmm. And I was like, not funny. Not cool guy. None of this is funny. Yeah. (laughs) Give me some more cheese and crackers. But still nice to look at. I have a picture of them and, (laughs) and me standing by like the i don't know we took like a little van there or something um i think we're gonna need to see this photo megan it's pretty great just add it (laughs) add it too i had some sweet bangs oh love it sweet bangs i'll have to tell you you know camille sent a picture of her and her tube going down some rapids yeah and it's pretty awesome i'm gonna ask if we can add it to the photos i want to see it i mean i'm like you sent it to us Mm -hmm. that's it's ours now yeah 100 (laughs) percent we own it we own it it's ours anyway uh, thanks for that suggestion camille and thank you for the story that was oh, great yeah. jen yeah i enjoyed this interesting huh it's a good time so much more to talk about but we'll just leave it right there for now awesome okay you're gonna die out there is produced by us jen and megan and edited by jonathan pillsbury we'd love it if you could leave us a five-star itunes review on apple podcasts you can also support us by following us on instagram or twitter listening and subscribing wherever you get podcasts or becoming a patron. Check out more on our website at you'regonnadieoutthere.com where you can see our awesome eco-friendly sponsors and Nature Nerd Artisans page. If you'd like to send us your own stories or episode ideas, you can submit them through our contact form on our website or to our email, you'regonnadieoutthere at gmail.com. And until next time, don't die out there. Bye. Bye. Your cats are losing their mind right now. <laughs> I can kind of hear them. They know we're talking about fish. It's fine. I guess so. They'll be it okay. started out like meow, meow. Now it's like, oh, <laughs> it's like that, that meow. <laughs> that like scary one. The one that you're just like, what is happening? Are you guys okay? <laughs> That's got to be Panda. Panda will walk around the house and like he'll just walk to the back room, you know, mm-hmm. and he's going to go lay down and the other cats will join him. But sometimes they'll get up and come back out. Mm-hmm. And if they're not there, he gets really upset. He'll do that crazy wow, like <laughs> wow, and I'm like, "Are you okay?" And I'll have to call him until he comes out, and then he sees everybody. And he's like, "Oh, they're all here." It's like he thinks we disappeared. Like he has no. He's he, like, "I'm all alone now." He's like, <laughs> he's like a toddler with no like. What's that thing where you know perception, object, per, object permanence? Yeah. Oh yeah. He like okay. cannot. Yeah. He's like, "This is you guys aren't here. You must be gone. Everybody died." He's not very smart. <laughs> he's not. Poor panda. Poor panda. That Godzilla story you just told, or uh-huh. like the information, it reminds me of when I watched the behind the scenes in in uh, Lord of the Well, The Hobbit, mm-hmm. and because there's like a part where they're like in barrels and they go down this river, and they were like, they actually took this area that was dammed up, the production company, and then they flooded it. And they used that and then superimposed stuff, you know, like the actual footage of those guys in this like man-made thing that they made, which was really cool. It was like a lazy river, but they Uh put like a, they actually hooked up a car engine to it and like ran the water really fast. Oh, that's cool. (laughs) It's so cool. Anyway, you should watch the behind the scenes on all of Lord of the Rings and the Hobbit. It's like Titanic behind the scenes. They're just in a big swimming pool. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, 15 foot waves. I could see that. Just like, it was crazy. Yeah. Everyone go watch it right now. Go do it.